Well, good morning again, and I also greet those who are watching live stream. It's nice to be together as a church, if not actually in this room, which there's a significant number here, but also vicariously, our church family is meeting together, and we all know that we come to this context with our prayers and our uh, dependence upon God. I, again, want us to wait on the Lord as we've been exhorted to do this week and trusting that, that he is sufficient, that our happiness does not rely on the circumstances around us. Sometimes that's hard to believe. And even today, our text, uh, though this was the chosen text for this week as we're working through the book of, of Matthew, it's a text that I think has significance, uh, even historically in times like this, as I will point out particularly at the end. Um, there will be, by the way, during the announcements, we're going to ask a public official, one of the, the, the premier officials of this city, of course, Doug Bruce, he's going to give us a bit of an update and hopefully demystify some things for us as well. So hang on for that after, this, um, after the worship itself. Um, but going into the text now, remember that uh, the last sermon in Matthew, we, we heard how Christ had sent the, the apostles out um, to be the gatherers of, of the people, to gather them together. It's pretty clear that, that the whole sequence of events is, is listening, if not parroting, uh, Isaiah 61, as we read, this idea that, that Israel one day would be gathering the nations to herself uh, and that would be a light in the midst of darkness. And you hear that even quoted here or referenced. And I think it's also going to give us a, a bit of a, a, an insight into the meaning of this idea of salt as well. So we come to a text where, of course, there is this sending, and now we have this kingdom statement as to what the kingdom of God is and the exhortation to the church, the exhortation to those who have been brought into the Who are we and what are we to do and be among the world? And so let's begin in prayer and then we'll, we'll look at that. Father, thank you so much for just your grace and your power and your strength and you are eternal, you do not waver, you are steady and steadfast, you persevere for us and we put our hope and faith in you even now asking that you would speak to us and, and use even this passage to speak into our circumstances today and our responsibility in those circumstances we pray. And all this we pray for Christ's sake and in his name, amen. Well, again, there is this kind of climactic exhortation that begins in verse 15, or, and, or 16, I'm sorry. The language of exhortation is clear. Let your light shine so, let your light so shine before people. It's, a, it's an exhortation. And so we want to hear that exhortation. The explanation is clear that your good works would show forth before people. That is to be in plain view. That's the essence of it. Let your light shine. That is, don't hide. Don't waver. Don't go, you know, off stream, if you will. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Let yourself be exposed as the Christian that you are amidst the people of the world. And the result there is that you would glorify your Father in heaven and, of course, there's a relationship then established between our earthly practice and God's heavenly glory. Stop and think about that for a minute. That, that God, in his infinite wisdom, chose to mystically unite himself with his body politic, the church. 
And that that church is given this commission and exhortation therein that we will be the very light of God. If you know that metaphor, you know that it's always associated with the temple. You know that it's always associated with God and his radiance of, of revelation. Every time there's a revelatory event, there's a lightness to it. It's always respecting God and his presence, though. The priests, one of their great tasks was, was to never let the light go out. That was something he would do every day. Make sure that light in the temple tower never went out. Calling the nations to, to itself. It was the very sin of Israel that, that upset Christ when he walked into his temple and the light had gone out. Particularly in the court of the Gentiles, the nations. The place where the nations were to gather, they had turned it into a place to make money. It's this incredible, amazing thing that you and I, that we have this kind of, of a profound task. There is only one God. There is only one way to eternal life and salvation. There's only one who is perfect and infinite in his being, who is worthy then to be glorified. It would be megalomaniac for anyone else to claim such attention. But if God is really God, think about that. It's just right and good. And the way in which we would flourish, that God would be glorified. That is, to glorify is to, to literally radiate the person of God, the eternal person of God, by virtue of, again, let your light so shine before people how that you live it before the people. That you live it before the people. And so there's this relationship, again, established between the glory of God, our salvation itself for the nations, and our own practices. Not just our teachings, but our practices. We'll talk more about that. But then there are these two clarifying metaphors. Salt and light. They would have both been very familiar to the first century people. And they would have also been very familiar to any who are familiar with redemptive history in the Old Testament. Let me try to explain a few things. Salt. Now, you heard that translation that it might not lose its taste. Uh, I'm not sure that's, that's, that's a conjecture. That's a, uh, an interpretive uh, sort of note, but it could mean just as well to preserve. It's interesting that throughout redemptive history that this image of salt is often utilized in the context of a covenant, in the context of making a covenant. And its purpose was always associated with preserving. It's interesting that you heard Isaiah. He coupled that you would preserve and be light. Did you hear that in the, in the reading of the word? It's most likely that this has nothing to do with tastiness. It has everything to do with preservation. To preserve God's glory. To preserve the integrity of God's life living out in the life of the body of Christ. You see, covenants were ordinarily made over a sacrificial meal. And that's the point in which salt was a necessary element. 
The preservative qualities of the salt made it a peculiar, particularly fitting symbol of an enduring compact, sealing it with an obligation to fidelity. The word salt thus acquired connotations of high esteem and honor in the ancient and modern language. Examples include the, the Arabian avowal, there is salt between us. That was a, that was a cliche in, in the days of, of, of the Old Testament. Oh, there is salt between us. That is faithfulness between us, loyalty between us, love between us. It really became bigger than salt, if you get what I'm saying. There is salt between us. In the Hebrew expression, to eat the salt of the palace. What does that mean? To eat the salt of the palace. That's a, a quote as well in the Old Testament. It means, of course, to, to partake of the fortress, to, to live and to be flourished with, with the presence of our king. So in the Old Testament, for instance, Leviticus 2, verse 13, you shall not omit from your grain offerings the salt of the covenant with your God. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Or Numbers 18, 19, all the holy offerings that the Israelites present to the Lord, I have given to you together with your sons and daughters as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your descendants as well. You see what's going on here. As in the ancient Near East, salt was employed in covenants because it preserves, empowers, and signifies the enduring nature of that covenant. Of course, Jesus uses the term elsewhere as well. The disciples are compared to the use of salt. Just as salt is a preservative, so too disciples of Jesus here are to think of themselves as having a preservative effect in a fallen world. In the negative, you could say for a disciple to not have this preservative effect and the world will be like salt that has lost its saltiness. Verse 13. That's the word tasteless. It's, it's lost your saltiness. And then the interpreter puts in there, well, what would that mean? Tastelessness. Mm, I think it's a bad translation. I think I'm showing you why. It means rather to lose your preservative. What do we make then of this idea to be foolish for the Lord? See, this is why I'm a little bit resistant, or not a little bit, a lot, as you can tell, resistant of this interpretation of salt as if it's just, you know, an aesthetic uh, sort of thing. Because then it would be a, a command in so many words to live my life in the way that the world would like it. And that would be a very dangerous way of living your life forming and making compromises to the world to the effect that you are no longer light in the midst of darkness, to the effect that you are no longer a preservative in the midst of rottenness, if that is what's the worldview and the idolatry of this world. It wouldn't make sense of Paul, who, who would say things like this in 1 Corinthians 1, has not God made foolish the wisdom and the salvation of God? I mean, salvation is always going to appear to those who do not have the spirit as kind of foolish, as, you know, a little bit exotic or a little bit kind of zealous, overzealous, or whatever it might be. So there's an interesting temptation here, I think, in missing the point. The world would be, we would be tempted as Christians, I said, to do the opposite of what Christ is here saying, it seems. 
forming those kind of compromises, getting caught up in the wrath and in the excitement and in the trends and in the mores and the ebb and flow and the liturgies of our world. I mean, I can even remember thinking to myself, you know, about some certain instances where as a Christian I say, well, they're not going to understand why I'm going to church, so maybe it's better that I don't go fulfill my duties as the pitcher of the baseball team. You see what we're doing? Just a little subtle thing. Why? Because, oh, they're going to be offended by that, and I want to be salty, tasteless. Ironically, it's the opposite. It got to me thinking, you know, this idea that we have in this country of the separation of church and state. And you can appreciate through the context that we live as well why I would even bring it up. But, but many of you may know Stephen Carter, who's a Yale professor in law. He gave a lecture that I was able to attend, and he made this point about the separation, but it gets kind of to what we're saying here today. He observed how conflict is the principal way in which religion and democracy ought to relate. It's really interesting, isn't it? And maybe the principal way in which they should always relate, he says. Now, what was Carter saying? Well, if you know him and his writings, you know he didn't mean that religion is opposed to the state. He has a very high view of the state as an arm of God. Nor was it uh, uh, to make the point that we're supposed to somehow get Christ out of culture or get religion out of the culture. No, he didn't say that at all. Rather, Carter's concern, his own concern here, is to preserve, to preserve the authenticity of the true faith so that it won't lose its power and its light. That is, from the context of an alien resident of the world. The communal context is to lose the integrity, the very witness that is the single most vital hope in the maintenance of a good state and society, even, he would argue. It is the danger of a totalitarian nation state or, in a democracy, the sovereign audience, as Nathan Hatch describes it. This totalitarian sovereign audience. If expressed vis-a-vis -vis the populism of this sovereign electorate and its corresponding political rhetoric, and the church then, seeking to be hip, seeking to be part of that rhetoric, begins to lose the edge that goes to the scripture and governs itself by scripture alone, whether it is political or not, whether it's politically correct or not. It's the position of being apolitical, not non-political, or anti-political, or of political, it's just apolitical. We walk to another drummer. That's the point that Christ is making here. Go out into the world, live it publicly, Christ and culture, but march to my drummer. That's it. We just, we're just going to be blind, at least in the principal way that we make our decisions. It was interesting this morning, I spoke with Doug, uh, what was that, about 6 o'clock this morning, and, and we were weighing again, oh, let's take one more look at this thing. Evidently, Doug had stayed up kind of late thinking about it, and, um, and we did. And it was interesting, 
how I thought of this sermon as we were talking. I didn't say that to him at the time because I didn't want to blow it. But, um, but it's interesting because right there in front of us, what is the medically sound thing to do, Doc? And he was confident that it, there was nothing unsound medically about what we're doing, and especially with the clause that uh, the pastoral letter gave to people encouraging them, even almost exhorting them, if you don't feel comfortable, don't go. There's no problem with conscience on this thing. And, and you'll see later, I'm going to give you some instances why that's uh, always been kind of the case of the church and how they've spoken to situations like this. But, but then on the other hand, there was this, there is a kind of, you know, perception that we were concerned about. What's the world going to perceive that we're doing? And in that sense, we, we were thinking of, and we did this in the session meeting this Thursday, we were saying, you know, I reminded them of our little cliche here, nothing to compel, nothing to repel, save Christ. That's a cliche which we use often here because it's, a, it's grounded in what we call the regulative principle of interpreting scripture, where we don't bind conscience except where there is conscience binding in scripture by good and necessary inference. But what about those things that are not so prescribed? Well, there may be things that we would direct from Scripture. We have a directory of worship, for instance, not a subscription of worship uh, liturgy. We would direct, <coughs> excuse me, direct certain lifestyles, etc. But at some point, we have to say, you know, while that may not be wise, I can't bind your conscience. Paul makes that point in Romans 14. I could, I'll, I could go on and on, but I'll stop at this point. But the point was is that we said, you know, on the one hand, yeah, there's a perception, and yes, it's definitely the case that people's consciences ought not to be bound. If as they consider their own medical state and circumstances, they feel that it's not a safe thing to do. But we decided we didn't want to, to caveat to just what people would think. Because we do believe the means of grace is a very vital issue for us, like food and water. We believe we're not just memorialists here. We believe that Jesus is right here in the mystery of his presence communing with us. A sacramental understanding of the church, you see. And so we made the decision. Yeah, we're going to make sure people feel comfortable, but we're going to move forward as long as we think it's medically safe. And here we are. And here we're not. But we are, vicariously, all one church. It's good. But that's, that's the kind of, it's interesting, isn't it, that you could work that out. Right here, be salt. Do it publicly, and just maybe the world will see something that will be refreshing. However we practice this, this COVID-19 issue, let the world see that we transcend it, that we step out of it. As I said in the letter, this is, we've got to take the power away from it. Whatever we fear, what really is the problem is not what we fear, it's the power we gave to it. And when you really stop and think at it, what could happen to me circumstantially that God isn't sufficient to still make me a happy man or woman? You've seen it. I've feared my eyesight. You feared your what? Cancer, whatever it is. Even anecdotally, we see how people can rise above it and be happy. It's not as powerful as we often think these things we fear. Here we have an opportunity. That's the point. To be a light in the midst of the world. Isaiah 9 says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. 
This is quoted in Matthew 4 earlier. Salvation brought into the darkness by the messianic ministry. And here again, Isaiah 61 is being referenced to speak to those who now have been gathered to, by the disciples witnessing and evangelism. What are they to be, these people who've been gathered like us? We're to be the salt, the preservation of what is good and right in the glory of God. And now we're to do it publicly as a light to the nations. Let our good works shine. Let us do good. Let us love. And the world will be confounded, especially when we go out of our way to love in times like this, when everyone else is self-preserving. This is the time to shine. You'll see. It's interesting, this idea of the light. Obviously, he condemns Israel for they have taken the light off of the lampstand of the temple is what he's talking about there. We're told to be a city with a light, a polis, the city politic under the politics of God, not of man, and we're to be on a hill. It's a common prophetic comparison. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 60, on and on it goes. This common association with Israel and Mount Zion. Mount Zion, where the whole world, nations, could see the Israel in the ancient times physically from around that region. So where does this all take us? What does this mean? Verse 13, the word earth. Verse 14, the world. It takes us out to the world. Over and over it says it here. We're preserving not by isolating ourselves and, and not speaking to social distancing right now, just so you know. But we, we take our light out into the world. We do it in earth. We do it in the world. These two general things, the sum total of everything we hear and, and do, the universe, we do it in the universe, if you will. Ever since the foundation of the world, we were to be worldly, if not of the world, for the world, in the world. Worldly, not of the world, but for the world, in the world. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, Matthew 18 says. The world is decaying, in other words. We believe that ever since Adam. We see it all around us. It just, and we can't stop it. Not all the medicine in the world, not all the politics in the world, not all the learning in the world, not all the protective police officers in the world can stop the decay. Because the decay is something deeply spiritual within each one of us. That's the point. The church is unique. That it has the only medicinal power on earth to save the earth. Do you believe that? Have you stopped and thought about that? We have the only medicinal power on earth that can save her. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ epicenter of the kingdom of God is the church of Jesus Christ because it is the guardian of the gospel. Not because of ourselves, not because of our powers within ourselves, our morality, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole thing is about. The field, our field, the harvest is our world. 
And the good seed means the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and we plant those seeds liberally. We scatter them everywhere. Everywhere we go and live in front of people. And so I think it's pretty clear now. You got it? Are you convinced that, that, that what I'm saying is from the Lord, from the scripture here? Because I wanted to give you that exegetical review to see that. But, but now I want to think about it a little bit more in terms of our implications. Christian disciples are to, be, to live these lives openly and plainly, without apology. Yes, it will bring derision. It will bring sometimes persecution. It will even appear foolish. But if we trust, if we trust in the Lord and in, and in his wisdom, it'll come back round. It really will. It'll come back round. I want to give you a couple of, of examples about how all this worked. The examples that I would take here are particularly interesting because they go back to two plagues that occurred historically. I'm skipping over some stuff here. Let me find it real quick. Here we go. You know, this isn't the first plague. I know you know that. The early church was no stranger to plagues, epidemics, and mass hysterias that came with it. In fact, according to both Christians and also non-Christian accounts, one of the main catalysts for the church's explosive growth in the early years was how Christians navigated disease and suffering and death. The church's posture made such a strong impression on the Roman society at that time that even pagan Roman emperors complained to pagan priests about their declining numbers, telling them to step up their game. Watch what these Christians are doing. So what did the Christians do differently that shook the Roman Empire? And what can the early church, we're talking around the 4th century here, teach us in light of the coronavirus? Well, here it is. In AD 249 to 262, Civilization was devastated by one of the deadliest pandemics in history. Though the exact cause of the plague is uncertain, the city of Rome was said to have lost an estimated 5,000 people a day at the height of the outbreak. One eyewitness, Bishop Dionysus of Alexandria, wrote that although the plague did not discriminate between Christians and non-Christians, quote, its full impact fell on non-Christians especially having noted the difference between Christian and non-Christian responses to the plague. He says of the non-Christians in Alexandria, and I quote, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburned, buried corpuses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread in the cantagon of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Even non-Christian accounts that we have on record confirms this sentiment. A century later, the Emperor Julian attempted to curb the growth of Christianity after the plague by leading a campaign to establish pagan charities that mirrored the charity work of Christians in his realm. In an AD 362 letter, Julian complained that the Hellenists needed to match the Christians in virtue, blaming the recent growth of Christianity on their Benevolence, I'm quoting here, benevolence to strangers. 
their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives. Everywhere, he wrote. Elsewhere, I'm sorry, he wrote. For it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. It gives me chills. My brothers, my sisters, what a response. According to Rodney Stark, historian in his book, The Rise of Christianity, this is because, quote, for all that Julian urged pagan priests to match these Christian practices, there was little or no response because there were no doctrinal basis or traditional practices for building or from which to build upon. Does theology matter, do you think? You bet it does. We hope and pray we'll always be a teaching church because you have to have a rich and robust doctrinal system in place to say, I really believe in life after this life. I really do believe in God's power and sovereignty. I really do believe this. Why? These are people who formed these beliefs by studying the scripture like the Bereans night and day to see whether the apostles were right in what they were teaching. You don't get this belief by your pastor just telling you what to believe. You get this belief because you go to the scriptures to find it. As God, by his spirit, builds within you strength of conviction. Even the pagans of the fourth century observed this. That it was their theology and their convictions that was the big difference between the Galileans and Christians and his own people. The impact was huge. Christians sacrificed for the fellow believers and even their neighbors stunned the unbelieving world as they witness communal love like they've never seen it before. Of course, we know that commandment. A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. And they also saw the sacrifice. Christian sacrificing for non-Christians resulted in the early church experiencing exponential growth through the plagues. The plagues turned out to be probably one of the most powerful growth mechanisms that the church has ever seen. It's when the church exposes itself in the light of day with their convictions, our convictions, and especially when those convictions are not popular. They are not the craze. They are not the hysteria. That's when our light shines so bright. Our response should be none other. Individualized, of course, figured it out, of course. But we continue to wrestle with how to respond to the coronavirus. I know that we're all wrestling ourselves, and we should. And we should be prudent. I'm going to speak of Luther in a minute and how he navigated that as well. But clearly, by this episode of the Roman Empire, the preservation of love was not lost. The light of the gospel was not lost. And we stayed public. Not, I'm not speaking to social distance right now. 
and the practices that we need to take. But we stay public in terms of talking, in terms of serving, making a phone call, the things that we can do. Martin Luther, of course, in the 16th century, also suffered what is known as the Black Plague. It lasted from 1347 to 1350. It killed one-fourth of, of Europe's population at the time. Later outbreaks occurred all the way into the 15th century as well, leaving deep emotional scars and terror in the memories of many Europeans. Now, when this disease was at an epidemic level, the mortality rate ranged from 30 to 90%. This was the historical context for a fascinating little pamphlet written in 1527 by the great reformer Martin Luther. The pamphlet was entitled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague or Not. In August 1527, the plague had struck Luther's city of Wittenberg, and many of his fellow citizens were running for their lives. In, in effect, I won't go through the whole story here. You could look it up if you want. But in effect, he had, I think it's nine or ten points that he made. But the gist of it was pretty close to what we've been saying. On the one hand, he made room for conscience. And he made room for those who considered themselves uh, to be at, at, at real risk, uh, to do what they needed to do. But then he especially spoke to those who were parents, any who had responsibilities for others, enjoining them not to, to flee their loved ones. He spoke to health providers. He spoke to pastors. He spoke to all those who were key leaders in the community and said, you can't run. You take every means you can to stay, to minister to the people on behalf of Christ. It was his response and his wisdom that proved very helpful. He talked to them about the fear of death. He talked to them about why the sting of that fear can and ought to be removed as Christians. That is a powerful message. It's almost like we're afraid to say that because it would appear. I'm even afraid to say it myself because I know how it feels. It feels foolish. It appears cavalier. And there he was, writing it out, sending it out. Christians, do we believe the gospel or not? Do we forsake love or not? You know, again, I want to be careful because he... He went also out of his way to say, I hadn't read it uh, when I wrote the letter this week, but just go back to that paragraph. I want you to know that's what we as a session believe as we articulate what you need to be thinking about in terms of your own life and your own convictions, your other responsibilities, why you do need to take care of yourself, etc. But it's just a point of light and salt that I want to make here. When the world will see it, is when they'll see our good works publicly. When they will see us with convictions that move us in a way that is absolutely dumbfounding and yet exhilarating to a watching world. These plagues remind us that this isn't the first plague of our world. People react in every every era, there are those who would react, oh, the end is coming, the end is coming. 
No, we're living in the last days. The last days began with the ascension of Christ, and they'll end when he comes again. And Christ said unequivocally that this is what will characterize the last days. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be plagues and rumors of plagues. There will be all of these sorts of things. And that is the very context, the very soil, wherein the gospel flourishes. Where Paul can say, my outer person is wasting away, but my inner person is being renewed day by day. Where Paul can say, in my weakness, God is sufficient. Where he can exhort us to flee the things we fear. And take courage and be strong. I would encourage us. It's not just what we preach on Sunday. It's not just what we say to one another with our words. I want to encourage us to think deeply about the liturgy the liturgy of the way we live our life. You know what I mean by that. We've used it many times. The liturgy, meaning the habitations, the, the manners, the, the way we live. What, what would people pick up? What energy picks, are picked up by the way we live our life? Do we stop the way we live in ways that are hyper-reactive? You see, as James K. Smith said, and I've said it before, in education, the way people learn is by virtue of a constellation, I'm quoting, of practices, rituals, and routines that inculcates a particular vision of the good life by inscribing it or infusing that vision into the heart, the gut, by means of material embodied practices. That's what we mean. Our love is like second nature, he argues. It directs and propels us often under the radar of conscious awareness, like breathing and blinking. It it also means that our loves acquire direction and orientation because we are immersed over time in practices and rituals grounded in our beliefs. We call those liturgies. And so I would encourage you to go home today or stay home today and think about your liturgy. Think about how you're acting and living and speaking. And let us, let Christ, inform that still. Don't listen to some people on the news, especially. Listen to those public officials that God has ordained to give us the right information. But listen also to Scripture. Listen to the Lord. Let us be strong. Let us be salt. God with us is Christ with us. We know that he is. This meal is described as a koinonia, that is to partake of Christ. 
he becomes in the mystery of his communion with us, the body of Christ, mystically united to your body. This meal is meant to convey that idea as much as it is to convey that presence vis-a-vis the body of Christ. When we eat this meal and drink this cup, we are drinking in the spirit of Christ that we might be the bread and the cup for our neighbor as well. We become the bread and the cup. Isn't that amazing? Now, I believe this, okay? This isn't just ritual routine. I believe this. Do you? God is God. I mean, yeah, if there were anyone other than God, I wouldn't believe this. But God, with a word, created the world. I believe this. Such miracles are nothing for God. And so think of the gravity of what we do, the privilege of what we have here, how it was that Christ, at his deepest traumatic moment, having just washed his disciples' feet, exhorting them to therefore go and wash one another's feet, how he made that imagery real when he brought his life to the table. And so taking the bread and broke it, he gave thanks and he said, this is my body. greater sacrifice could be made than for one to die for another. Same manner, he took the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. As we eat this cup and this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord, his presence now and his coming again as we await that certain conviction that he will come and restore even as he's restoring us now in the grace of the gospel. And so with that, we give our, our lives. This is a table for all those who put their hope and faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, who join themselves to any gospel-believing church. If this is not you at this time, we are so glad you're here. You're supposed to be here. We prepare for you to be here. We have prayers that might be useful to you in the next pages of the bulletin. Take it seriously. Just voice a prayer. God, I still don't even know if I believe you're God, but God, if you're God, give me faith, because faith can only be given. It can't be earned. It can't be emotionalized. It can't be rallied up to a decision unthoughtful. It's got to be the grace of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Ask for shall be given. Knock and the door will be opened. And so with that, I'm going to encourage us now to present ourselves to Christ, even as we present ourselves uh, to God uh, in this way of coming forward. But to do this, let's begin, first of all, with the uh, confession of faith. If we could put that up.